are in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 this morning. And we're going to be looking at um, verses 1 through 10 of Hebrews chapter 7 this morning. Be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in another case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. As I prepared for this message this morning and tried to come up with a title for the message, I kept searching for something, you know, that would be creative or grab someone's attention and that sort of thing. And to be honest, I came up with nothing. Um, and I, I, so I just wrote out the title and I thought to myself, is, is anyone really going to be interested in hearing who is Melchizedek? You know, like, does that pique anybody's interest? Oh, just what I always wanted to hear, who Melchizedek is. You know, I've, I've always been wondering that. Uh, I doubt anyone rolled out of bed this morning and thought, yes, today I get to hear about Melchizedek. I, I highly doubt that. In fact, you probably rolled out of bed and thought, ugh, snow again. But um, I understand the desire for many to have a self-help message. I mean, folks have marriage problems and they have kid problems and they have financial problems and, and personal problems. And I've heard many times that you, your sermon should always address a felt need in someone's life. And, and, uh, that's what people say. Well, at least that is what uh, many of the modern folks say. Why would anyone want to learn about Melchizedek who is so obscure in the scripture? I mean, what kind of name is Melchizedek anyway? After all, couldn't pastor have taken a break? I mean, Valentine's Day is coming up. He could have preached a sermon on love or something like that. But um, I believe that this message and learning about who Melchizedek is will help you in many areas of your life. And in whatever role you are currently in in your life, I believe it can benefit you. I think by the time we are done, we'll be glad that we learned about Melchizedek. Now let's remember uh, that the Jewish Christians were facing a strong temptation to abandon their faith and return to Judaism because they are living under the threat of persecution. Some of them had lost property and had even suffered public reproach all because of their faith 
in Christ. Their thought process went kind of like this. When we were Jews, we didn't have all of these problems. We were free to exercise our religion without any persecution. Plus, what was so bad about being a Jew anyway? It showed us right living. We would perform all the rituals and all the rituals had meaning to them. Plus, it was the faith of our forefathers. Maybe we should just go back to that system because it was so easy and we could do that. Have you ever been the victim of the pull of traditionalism in your life? I mean, it's a strong pull. I'm sure we've all heard these words before. Well, we've never done it that way before. Or, we've always done it this way. As if the way we've always done things is right solely because it is how we've always done it. Just because we've always done it that way doesn't mean it's the right way. The pull of the past is a strong pull. And we like to live in the remember wins. You know what I mean? Remember when? Remember when we did this? Remember when we had this? Remember this time? Remember that? Remember, remember, remember the remember wins. Instead of the what can be. We struggle with the what can be because we can't see it. So we constantly look at the remember when. Instead of looking forward to the what can be. And you know why the Pharisees hated Jesus so much? Because He took their religion. They were the remember wins. And He stood it on their head. And He said, you need to abandon the tradition of your religion. Jesus didn't come so that we could establish a tradition that's void of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet that's what many churches are doing today. And so the author of Hebrews is trying to convince the people that Jesus is far greater than any religious system that they could possibly come up with. He is greater than the rituals. He is greater than, than, uh, the, the sacrifices. He's greater than the rules. They all have been replaced. This is why he is focusing in on the supremacy of Christ, who is the fulfillment of all that was written by Moses and the prophets. The theme that has been uh, that has been focused in on and introduced back in chapter five is that Jesus is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And why do we need a high priest anyway? Because God is holy, and we are sinfully defiled. Therefore, God is unapproachable by us. When the prophet Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on the throne and the angels crying out, Holy! 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 is the Lord of hosts. He said He was undone. Why did Isaiah say that? Because he immediately was made aware that he was sinful in comparison to what? The holiness of God. When Moses and Israel were in the wilderness, the people could not even get close to the mountain. Or God would strike them with a deadly plague. Why? Because God is holy and they were sinful. You can't, you couldn't just take a stroll into the holy of holies, the holiest place of all, or you'd be struck dead. Only the priest could enter and then only once a year. Why? Because God is holy and we are sinful. And even when the priest would enter once a year, the people needed, it showed the need for a high priest if they were ever going to approach God. And the author of Hebrews is making it clear that Jesus is that high priest. However, He is not a high priest in the order of the Levitical priesthood, 
but he is greater than that. He is a greater priest because his priesthood is forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ was greater than the Old Testament sacrificial system because he fulfilled it and he superseded it. To go back to the old way of doing things made no sense. You know, to say, well, this is how we've always done it. Is to turn from and go back to an inferior way of doing things. So who is Melchizedek? Why do we need to know about him? The temptation is to say, well, because his name's in the Bible, so we should know about him. Well, Melchizedek is what we call a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since we need to know more about Jesus than we need to know about Melchizedek. And so what happened, because in Hebrews chapter 5, Verse 6, if you've been uh, following along with us, the author speaks of Jesus being after the order of Melchizedek. And then in verse 11 of chapter 5, the author enters into a series of warnings and admonitions that continue all the way to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 8. And it is really not until we get to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20 that he moves away from the subject of warning and admonition. And then from chapter 6, uh, verses 13 through 20, he gives us a, this encouraging word of exhortation about our assurance and that we see the ground of our assurance for salvation. And it's not until we get to Hebrews chapter 7 that he comes back to the subject of Melchizedek that he started clear back in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 6. But he hasn't forgotten it anywhere along the line. He just has something very urgent to say to the Hebrews as a congregation into us as we read. And now as we get here to Hebrews 7, 1, he comes right back to the theme of Melchizedek. Now the author in verse 4 of chapter 7 tells us to see how great this man was. It means to understand how great he was. We are to look and understand Melchizedek because he is a type of Christ and because we desire to know more about Christ, to know more about his glory, we are to observe Melchizedek. We observe Melchizedek as a type of Christ because we know that Jesus is the solution to every problem that we are faced with today. Now, with that said, verses 1 through 3, we see that Melchizedek is the king priest. He is the type of Christ in his character and in his qualifications. Now, it's important to note that the Son of God is not made like Melchizedek, but Melchizedek is made like the Son of God. Now, in verses 4 through 10, he's going to focus in on the superiority of Melchizedek, and we will see first how he is greater than Abraham, and how Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, and how he blessed Abraham. And then we see that he is greater than the Levitical priests and the system because they were mortal and Melchizedek lives. And secondly, because Levi, who received tithes, actually paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. So, let's dive into this passage of Scripture. First of all, Melchizedek was a type of Christ in his character. Everything that we know about this Melchizedek comes from Genesis chapter 14, verses 19 and 20, and Psalm 120, verse 4, and Hebrews chapter 7. What we know is that he's both king and priest. Genesis is a historical record. Psalms is a prophetic record. And Hebrews is a theological record. Melchizedek was the king of Salem. In fact, in verses 1 and 2, the word king is used four times. But he is also priest of the Most High God. So he was both priest and king. Which by law, no Levitical priest could also be king. And so what happened was Abraham had gone after these four kings that had taken his nephew Lot and his family captive when they raided Sodom where Lot and his family lived. And Abraham defeated the kings. He recovered all of the goods and he brought Lot and his family back. And when Abraham got back, Melchizedek came out to meet Abraham and he blessed Abraham. And Abraham then gave Melchizedek one-tenth of his spoils. 
And so from the account, the author of Hebrews parallels Melchizedek with Christ. Now the first parallel to the character of Christ is that Melchizedek, as we noted, is both king and priest. Which also, as we noted, was not allowed. You could be king or you could be priest, but you could not be both at once. John Calvin takes note that on one side you had Sodom, and on the other side you had the Canaanites, and in the middle you had Melchizedek, showing that God will raise up whomever he wants, wherever he wants, and whenever he wants. Anyway, Melchizedek is like Jesus, both king and priest. Jesus, however, is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and Jesus is the ultimate priest, and he enters into the Holy of Holies by his own blood. But look at verse 2 as it speaks of Melchizedek. It says this, that he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and he then, he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. The author is using his name here to reveal to us about who Melchizedek is. Melchi in the Hebrew means my king. Zedek means righteousness. Salem comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. You do not have peace without righteousness in any kingdom. In fact, if in any kingdom, whatever the kingdom may be, if the king is not righteous, or the people are not righteous, if they both are not righteous, you will not have true peace. It's impossible. Because sin always brings strife. And righteousness is the solution in order to have peace. And so, lots of times we try to think, well, well, if, if we only have this, then, then the United States of America would be righteous. No, it won't. It's never going to be righteous. We may think we're righteous, but we're never going to be righteous. Because we will never have someone that leads us who is righteous, and the people will never be fully righteous. It's never going to happen. So we can just kind of get that thought out of our mind. But this is what he's saying, that, that he was righteous. It's not a coincidence that Jesus is called Jesus Christ the righteous in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. In fact, we know that His righteousness is imputed or imparted to us according to the Scriptures. Jesus never sinned. He's a spotless Lamb of God who's righteous, who's righteous in every single way. Jesus is the King of righteousness who will reign in righteousness and will wage war against the wicked according to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Melchizedek is a type of Christ in his character as both are kings of righteousness. They also both are kings of peace. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, we read that Jesus is our peace. Jesus as king brings peace between sinners and God through what we call justification. This is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by our faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. God did not set aside His righteousness to make peace with sinners, but instead He laid the penalty of our sin on Jesus Christ, who was perfectly righteous as our substitute. And so Jesus brings righteousness and peace together. They both symbolize the character of Jesus Christ. He is the sovereign King of righteousness and peace. He is the sovereign giver of righteousness and peace. And so Melchizedek is a type of Christ in his character. One last thing before we move on. It would stand to reason that if we know Christ as Savior, then He is our righteousness and our peace and we should be therefore growing in righteous behavior and pursuing peace with others. We will never be perfect, but we should be growing in conformity to the one we claim as our king. 
And so Melchizedek was a type of Christ in his character. Secondly, Melchizedek is a type of Christ in his qualifications. Look at verse 3. It tells us that he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. It's like somehow Melchizedek is immortal. To be a priest in Israel, you were totally dependent on your family lineage. Every priest was from the tribe of Levi. If you were not from the tribe of Levi, you need not apply to be a priest. So if you could not establish your heritage, then you were excluded from the priesthood. But here we read that Melchizedek was without father and mother or genealogy, with no beginning and no end, yet in verse 1, he is a priest of the Most High God. Now some people say, well, that must mean that Melchizedek was an angel who took on human form and ministered to Abraham. Some people say that Melchizedek is what we call a Christophany, which is an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. I don't think either one of those are true, and I don't think we need to make things up to give an explanation of who Melchizedek is. He was a great man who lived in the time of Abraham, and I believe the author of Hebrews is using a rabbinical method of interpretation from silence. The point he is making is that, that in the Genesis account that, that has uh, all these mentions of, of lineage, we don't have any mention of the parents of Melchizedek or his genealogy or when he was born or when he died. He's not immortal because the argument is based on the priesthood of Melchizedek not on the personhood of Melchizedek. The author is showing that the Holy Spirit deliberately omitted these facts about the life of Melchizedek in a book that is filled with genealogies to show that he is a type of Christ. That is why he says Melchizedek resembles the Son of God and not the Son of God resembles Melchizedek. The focus is not on the person of Melchizedek, but on the priesthood of Melchizedek and what Genesis omits showing that he remains priest forever. Now, while Jesus had a human lineage that is given to us in Scripture, his royal bloodline could be traced to Judah. He had no priestly genealogy. He did not come from the priestly tribe of Levi in order to be our high priest forever. Jesus had to be a of a different priestly tribe. He had to be. So he is of the order of Melchizedek. The point is that Jesus' priesthood was like that of Melchizedek because they both were based solely on the call of God. They weren't based upon hereditary or heredity. Jesus and Melchizedek were both appointed as priests of the Most High God. So Melchizedek is a type of Christ in his qualification and that he had no genealogy, but also he had no beginning or ending. And this is what is meant by all, by, by that all Levitical priests, um, served a limited term. Every single one of them. And, um, that was typically right around 30 years, no more than 30 years. So if you were a Levitical priest, you served in the priesthood no more than 30 years. So that means y'all are stuck with me 25 more years. So, get used to it. That's, that's a joke, but, well, I mean, you might be stuck with me 20, I don't know, but, but, uh, that's the way it was. With Melchizedek, there's no set beginning or ending. To his life, this, this, this idea of no beginning or ending was a foreshadowing of Christ who was, whose priesthood was eternal. This is why he said, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. The silence of the biblical record of Melchizedek's days suggests that he is, his priesting is continuous and foreshadows what is fulfilled in Christ who ministers continually without interruption. The big picture is that Melchizedek is a type of Christ in his qualification and he was a foreshadow way back there in the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ who would perfectly fulfill 
the Genesis account of Melchizedek. So in Christ, or so in character and qualification, Jesus fulfills a role that Melchizedek foreshadows. Now, this was not seen until the author of Hebrews reveals it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The author is saying the whole point of this writing of Melchizedek, way back there in Genesis chapter 14, the whole point of it was to reveal what Christ would fulfill. Now, that should blow our mind. That we can go back and read the book of Genesis and early on in chapter 14, we have this Melchizedek who is a type of Christ. And the whole point of it was to reveal what Christ would fulfill all these years later. That should be reason to rejoice. That way back in Genesis, God was sovereignly working out His plan. Clear back in Genesis, He's working and orchestrating His plan. Nothing takes place on this earth apart from the authority of a sovereign God. He's working out what He's going to do. Now the author is going to go even deeper as he will present the superiority of Melchizedek over and above the Levitical priesthood. So that's what we see next. Melchizedek is a type of Christ in the superiority of his priesthood. The author of Hebrews is making it clear that Melchizedek is shown to be superior in his priesthood in two specific ways. These come from his meeting with Abraham. And those two ways are that, that, that deal with, they deal with tithing and blessing. And the point that's being driven home for us is that Melchizedek is greater than both Abraham and Levi based upon these two facts. Look at this. He's superior in the receiving of tithe. Now we have to understand that in the ancient world, at this time, paying a tithe to another person was a recognition of their superiority and it was a sign of subjection to that person. So Melchizedek receives tithes from both Abraham and Levi. When we think of Abraham giving his tithe, we will do well to remember that he had just returned from the slaughter of the kings. He was on what we would call a mountaintop experience. And so Abraham spontaneously recognizes that Melchizedek represented the Most High God, and therefore he gives him a tenth of his choicest spoils as an act of worship towards God for granting him the victory over the four kings. Abraham had the recognition that he was in the presence of someone greater than him. That's why the author says, See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. He's setting him up. He said, look how great Melchizedek is. Even Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils to him. He's showing that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. Now look what the author does. He anticipates that some people will diminish Melchizedek in their minds by saying this, well, big deal. The Levitical priests collect tithes too. They also collect tithes. And so he says, And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham. The author is driving home the point that the whole reason that the tribe of Levi was able to collect tithes in the first place was because the law made provision for them to collect the tithes. However, Melchizedek was different because he did not trace his lineage from Levi and yet he still collected tithes from Abraham. Not from the people, but from Abraham himself. 
If we skip down to verse 8, we have another emphasis of the superiority of Melchizedek in relation to the tithe. He says, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Then the author goes even further, revealing that Levi, who was Abraham's great-grandson, gave tithes to Melchizedek through the tithes of Abraham. He says that Levi was still in the loins of his ancestor when all this took place. It was commonly held belief that an ancestor contained in him all the descendants. This is why Paul argues that through Adam all have sinned in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. The author of Hebrews was one uh, says one could even say that through Abraham, Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. Now, some people have tried to take this passage scripture and argue for the principle of a tithe and say that we're called to give God 10%. And this verse proves that we're called to give God 10%. And this came before the law of Moses. Some people try to make that argument. However, we would do well to remember that we only have this one record of Abraham doing this one time. And we have one record of Jacob doing it one time in Genesis chapter 28. Interestingly enough, the New Testament epistles never gives a command to tithe. Ever. Paul does not even make this command when he writes and gives instructions to predominantly Gentile congregations. We don't find a command to tithe. And so, this is a side note, a little side note for you. So, hear me out. Because some of you I can hear it now. You're saying, wow, pastor's saying I don't have to tie. And you're right. I am saying that. Because the New Testament principle is that God owns everything. That's the New Testament principle. And that you give back to Him. He owns all that you have and all that you are. Everything that you have is just what He's giving to you. And He calls you to give back. In other words, you are stewards of what is not yours. You are a steward of what is His. And we will give an account to Him for what we've done with what is His. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a little more scary to me than a tithe. To know that I'm going to give an account to God for what He has given to me. What He said here, steward this. This is what you have to steward. You're going to give an account for what I've given you. In other words, you take what is His and you decide what you're going to do with it to advance His kingdom. So you'd, you'd be right. I don't believe in a tithe. I preach, on, I preach on grace giving. And you've heard me say that before. In fact, if we want to go back to a tithe, it's more like 33%. So if you want to start giving that, be my guest. I don't believe in a tithe. It's grace giving. And what that means is that God has given you everything and you need to sit down and prayerfully consider how much you should be giving back to God. And I would venture to guess that some of you should be giving much more than you are. I'm just, I don't know what any of you give. So if you're like, well, that, well you just stepped on my toes, Pastor. Well, I don't know what you give. I'm just saying, I would venture to guess that some of you should be giving much more than you are because it's all God's anyway. So I don't know why you're holding on to it. It's been given you, not so that you could have just the greatest lifestyle in the world, but so that you could further the kingdom of God. And trust me, you can lose it a lot faster than you gained it. But that's not the point of this, okay? 
point is this, that the Levitical priesthood acknowledges the superiority of Melchizedek by paying a tithe to Melchizedek in advance. Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham and Levi. Therefore, he is superior in his priesthood. Listen closely. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. The point. Melchizedek is superior and worthy of the tithe. And Jesus is greater still. He is our high priest. He is worthy of every single penny that you could possibly give to Him. But He is worthy of even more than your tithe. He is worthy of all that you are because He has bought you with His blood. Don't you understand that? He owns you. There is no gift that you can possibly give that would compare to the matchless worth of Jesus Christ. Don't you love it when you get a great deal? I mean, I hear some of you guys talk about Black Friday shopping. Oh, I got this for, oh, I say $500 or whatever, right? I mean, I hear it. Don't you love that when you get a great deal? Let me tell you something. When you got His grace in exchange for your sin, you will never match that deal. Ever. Never, never, never. He is superior in the receiving of tithes. Now let's see that He is superior in the giving of blessing. The author is using another principle here to establish the superiority of Melchizedek. And that is this. In a biblical blessing, the superior always blesses the inferior. And so Abraham was God's chosen man and God promised to bless the nations through Abraham. Man, Abraham received a lot of blessing. Melchizedek then blesses Abraham. Abraham knew he should present a tithe, and he did, and he knew he should receive a blessing, and he did. Now remember, God told Abraham that all people on earth would be blessed through him. And when it comes to blessing, how do you get any higher than Abraham? When all the people uh, will be blessed through him. But Abraham sees himself as inferior to Melchizedek. And he receives his blessing from him. The inferior is blessed by the superior. Yes, there are different ways to use the term blessing. But here it is the sense of a priestly blessing or a fatherly blessing. And it is not a mutual blessing. The one that imparts the blessing is conveying God's blessing through their authority. Not the one that is being blessed. And since Melchizedek is pronouncing God's blessing on Abraham, then he is greater than the great Abraham who had all of these blessings from God. Therefore, we must conclude that Melchizedek's priesthood, even though we only have a brief mention of it in Scripture, is superior in every biblical and logical way to the priesthood of the Old Testament Levitical system. Now here's the thing. Melchizedek is just a type of the ultimate superior priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. See, as great as Melchizedek is, Christ is greater. Though Melchizedek was king of righteousness and peace, he could never make anyone righteous. Or give them true peace. He was only a representation of it. A foreshadowing of the one that can make people righteous. And can give true and lasting peace. Jesus Christ is righteousness incarnate. He is naturally righteous. He is the essence of righteousness. He is the sum of all righteousness. He is the source of all Righteousness. Without Christ, we wouldn't even fully understand righteousness, but He is also the giver of righteousness. We have no hope of receiving righteousness apart from Christ. God gives righteousness. He makes us righteous through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Not only that, but I love what Kent Hughes says. Christ is the mediator of righteousness. 
When He gives His righteousness, He is our personal high priest who prays for the working of His righteousness in every area of our lives. He remains our King and priest of righteousness forever. How awesome is it to think that if Melchizedek could bless Abraham, how much more is the Son of God ready, willing, and able to bless those whom He has given His righteousness to? He is our King of Peace. The peace we receive from Him follows the gift of righteousness He gives to us. We understand that He is the Prince of Peace according to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. He is our source of peace. And without Him, there is no peace. He is the giver of peace. When He was, when He was born, the angels proclaimed peace on earth. Right before His death, He proclaimed peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Following His resurrection, He said to His disciples, Peace be with you. Finally, as our mediator, He prays for our peace. Oh, we should take comfort, Christian, in knowing that He prays for our peace. He secured our righteousness and our peace. And now, He devotes continual prayer on our behalf. Continually going to the Father for us. I don't know that we totally understand that Melchizedek blessing Abraham is showing that he is superior as a type of Jesus. Blessing us shows that he is superior. If you want to be blessed by God, you ask. We need so much from God. Eternal life. Forgiveness of sin. Peace within our soul. Hope. Joy in the midst of trials. Grace to endure whatever it is that we face. Victory over sin. Healing for our hurts. Do you get it? Jesus is our high priest. He mediates on our behalf to God the Father. He gives out His blessing to those who have His promise. You can call out to God for hope. And you can call out to God for victory. And you can call out to God for grace. And you can call out for God for healing. And He hears you. And so this morning, I challenge you to draw near to God and cry out to Him because He is ready to bless you. In closing, I want to make some application. It was vital that the Hebrews who received this letter not turn back from Christ to the old religious system. To not turn from the gospel to the law. The author is making it clear that all of these things are a foreshadowing of Christ. What we must understand is what we believe about Christ today makes a huge difference in our life. You see, the Hebrews were in danger of falling away from the faith all because they did not grasp how great Melchizedek is and therefore they struggled to grasp how greater Christ is who Melchizedek was a type of. Now here's the thing. I'm convinced that in the American church we do not have a full grasp of who Christ is. Jesus asked the most important question that could be asked to His disciples when He asked them this. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now we hear that question and we try to make it subjective. And this is how we treat that question. Well, this is what Jesus means to me. It's not a subjective question, folks. It doesn't matter what Jesus means to you. You're like, well, pastor, that's harsh. It is harsh. But it doesn't matter what Jesus means to you. It matters who Jesus is. He says, who do you say that I am? And we hear a lot of people, well, Jesus means this to me, and Jesus means that to me, and Jesus, He's just this and this and this. But the question has a true objective answer. And everyone's eternal 
destiny hinges on their answer to that question. Everyone's. And if we answer correctly by faith, saying Jesus Christ is the Son of God who gave Himself to be crucified on the cross as the only sacrifice for my sins, and I place my faith in Him and Him alone, we have eternal life. However, if you make Jesus anything less, perhaps you say, well, Jesus was a great teacher. Doesn't matter if that's what you think. That's subjective. The answer has an objective truth. Or you say, well, Jesus was a great moral person. It doesn't matter. That's a subjective answer. The answer has an objective truth. And if we try to make it subjective, then you do not have Jesus as your high priest. And when you stand before God in judgment and try to give a subjective answer, well, I thought Jesus was this. And I thought Jesus, well, this is what Jesus means to me. God doesn't care what Jesus means to you. He cares who Jesus is. And His wrath will be poured out on everyone who does not answer that question correctly. Everyone. And any teaching that diminishes or undermines the supremacy of Christ is a false teaching. How do you apply this message to your life? Well, first of all, who do you say that Jesus is? Secondly, I would challenge you to go hard after God and to be a student of His Word. We have all kinds of things in our lives that we we go after. I mean, we spend and waste time doing many things that in the light of eternity will mean nothing. They're just going to be meaningless. I do that in my own life. I go out to things sometimes that in eternity it's going to mean nothing. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. The loss of all things. And counted them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ. What are you doing with your life, Christian? Can you honestly say Jesus is enough? Can you say that you count everything as loss compared to the worth of knowing Jesus Christ your Lord? Are you willing to lose everything that you have in your life? All of your money, all of your possessions? Are you willing to lose it all and count every last Thing as rubbish in order to gain Christ. I'm not saying don't take care of your family. I'm not saying you're not allowed to have nice things or even money. What I'm asking is Christ truly everything to you? We say that, we say that, we say, well, well, he's everything to me, but do you display it? I believe if our faith actually matched who Christ is, then we would gladly allow all of our earthly hopes and dreams, everything that we ever wanted on this earth, to be utterly destroyed. We would gladly surrender all of our wealth and all of our things that we hold so dear when we see Christ for who He is. We would understand that He is our High Priest. And He entered into that Holy of Holies not with the blood of goats and bulls, but forever by His own blood. And He is now in heaven interceding for you and for me and all the things of this world 
if we would just understand that, would lose their grip on us. And we would cry out, I want more of Christ. So why did we need to learn about Melchizedek? Because he's a type of Christ. He foreshadowed Christ. And he's used to tell us more about who Christ is and his role as our high priest. If you are ever going to endure hardship in your life and suffering and even persecution, if you want to cry out for God's blessing on your family and in your personal life, if you're going to resist temptation and live a life that's righteous before God, to go hard after God and be a student of His Word, may your faith and my faith match what we believe about Jesus Christ. And may it truly be evident in our life, because when He is our all, in all. When He is our everything, it's then that we can actually sing the song, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from His hand till He returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Church, turn your eyes upon Jesus and see that the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. Are you doing that this morning? Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? And is your faith really matching who you say He is? Here in a minute, we're going to close in prayer. I'm going to give you the chance to respond. And maybe this morning, you've never answered that question in your life and you need to confess Christ as your Savior. I'll be standing down front. I'd love to pray with you. Maybe this morning you examine your life and your faith isn't matching what you say about Christ. Maybe you just need to pray. Maybe you need to pray in your pew. Maybe you'd like to pray with me, whatever it might be. I'll be standing there ready to pray with you if that's what you want or, or come up and tell me you want to talk to me later or whatever it might be. But how will we respond to the words of the Lord this morning? Let's close a prayer.